Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. I'm delighted to welcome as our guest today Dr. William Dietz, director of the Division of Nutrition, Physical Activity, and Obesity in the Center for Chronic Disease Prevention and Health Promotion at the Centers for Disease Control. Prior to joining the CDC, he was a professor of pediatrics at the Tufts University School of Medicine, widely known for his scholarly work on the issue of obesity and in more recent years, his policy work at the CDC. I believe he's one of the true heroes in dealing with the obesity problem. Bill, I'm delighted to have you here. Thanks, Kelly. Glad to be here. So let's talk about the childhood obesity problem and put it into some perspective. How serious an issue is it at the population level? Well, currently, about 17% of the pediatric population are obese, defined as a body mass index greater than or equal to the 95th percentile. And approximately equal numbers are overweight. Um, and overweight is a kind of a mixed category. Some of the kids who are overweight are not over fat and others are over fat. Um, or said another way, uh, some of the people in the overweight category have a lot of lean tissue. They're muscular people. So there's more misclassification in the overweight category. But obesity is a serious problem. 60% of obese children have at least one additional cardiovascular disease risk factor like elevated insulin or glucose, elevated lipid levels, or elevated blood pressure. And 30% have two or more. Now these risk factors morph into the diseases of adulthood that are associated with obesity, such as diabetes or cardiovascular disease. The other risk that occurs in adulthood is cancer. About 20% of all cancers are associated with obesity. The concern about childhood obesity is that these children often go on to become overweight adults. And as adults, they are twice as likely to have severe adult obesity. About 50% of all adults with severe obesity were overweight as children or adolescents. What do the trends look like? I mean, how far back does this increasing trend go, and is it escalated in particular points in history? Well, the national data suggests that things were pretty flat until the 1970s or after the 1970s when obesity began to accelerate rapidly. So that by 1999, there had been a threefold increase in the prevalence of obesity in children and adolescents. Since 1999, however, things have changed. The slope has certainly changed for girls, and there has been no apparent significant increase in the prevalence of obesity in girls. There's a little more uncertainty about boys. Um, among Caucasian boys, the, the prevalence seems to have been flat. There's a plateau. But obesity seems to still be increasing among African-American boys. So that's of great concern. It is of great concern. Now, we'll talk more, more about the U.S. and we will talk about other countries. But is this trend in increasing childhood obesity being seen outside the U.S.? There's... And any country that has longitudinal data has seen an increase in the prevalence of obesity. And just as we're beginning to see a plateau here, others are noticing a plateau uh, elsewhere, particularly in countries like the UK. Okay. And I'd like to come back and talk about the reasons for that that plateau might be occurring in a little bit. But let's dive a little bit more deeply into the medical issues. Um, you talked about a number of serious medical problems that follow from childhood obesity, either that afflict children during their childhood years or track them into adult years. What about diabetes in particular? Well, diabetes is the um, most obvious consequence of childhood obesity. And um, 
about when I was still seeing patients in Boston, which is now about 30 years ago, I started having cases of childhood onset type 2 diabetes, which had previously been called adult diabetes. Um, and that was really a surprise it's, uh, and, and was rare at the time. That's no longer the case, that uh, one of the most obvious consequences of the childhood obesity epidemic is an increase in type 2 diabetes in children, a disease that pediatricians had not seen uh, really prior to this decade. And what ages are, are pediatricians well, seeing this now? The the, uh, the peak, I believe, is still at about age 13 or 14, but you can see it as, as young as age 9. And there's still a lot to be learned about the natural history of type 2 diabetes in children and adolescents. Um, some studies suggest that the same amount of time elapses between the time of diagnosis and the development of problems like kidney disease or, or uh, visual problems. But think about what that means for a 15-year-old as opposed to a 45 or 50-year-old. By 30 years of age, that 15-year-old may need dialysis or may have blindness or may be looking at limb amputations. Um, that, that's a, a major concern. And there have been recent estimates from the CDC, which suggests that one in three children born in the year 2000 will develop diabetes during their lifetime. And if you're African-American or Mexican-American, the risk may be as high as one in two children born in that period likely to develop type 2 diabetes. Well, that's just a frightening statistic. Yeah, it's a real concern. Now, so thus far, we've talked mainly about the medical consequences of this. What about the social and psychological consequences? Well, interestingly enough, there, were, there, there was a study done now probably 30 or 40 years ago which assessed the, the, um, how well-liked um, a variety of children with various disabilities were um, among their peers. Children were asked to assess whether they would want to be friends with a child who was blind in one eye or had suffered an amputation or who was obese. And invariably, the obese individuals were ranked lowest uh, as um, people that children wanted to be friends with. And you would think that as obesity has become more normative in the population, that would have disappeared. But Mickey Stunkard, a, a wonderful investigator in Philadelphia, who you trained with, I believe, um, repeated that study about three or four years ago and found exactly the same thing. So despite the fact that the population has shifted, obesity is still a very stigmatizing condition in children. Another social consequence is bullying. Um, obese, obese children are much more likely to be bullied. And one of the things that is becoming apparent is the frequency with which severe obesity in childhood or in adulthood is associated with abuse in early childhood or adolescence. Abuse of all kinds, verbal, sexual, physical um, abuse. And um, that, that suggests to me that there may be a subset of severe obesity that we have to pay particular attention to because unless those issues are addressed, unless the abuse is directly addressed, um, we may not see remissions of obesity. It may be twice as hard to treat. The other characteristic of those individuals who have suffered abuse in early childhood is that they also um, employ a variety of other risk-taking behaviors. They're more likely to use alcohol or drugs or tobacco or unprotected sex. And so what proportion of the population is constituted by this subset is a, a bit uncertain, but it suggests that if we're going to address multiple risk factors simultaneously, that's a, a key diagnosis to make in a key group uh, that for whom standard therapy is not likely to work unless these other issues are addressed. So you've created this 
pretty dire picture of very high rates of childhood obesity, very serious medical consequences, serious social and psychological consequences. Let's talk about where it comes from. So why the increasing prevalence in the past several decades? Well, it's often said that obesity is a genetic condition, but and it's true that there is a genetic predisposition to obesity, but those genes have been present in the population forever, uh, way back to when we were living as hunter-gatherers in, in the African veldt. But what's happened is that the environment has changed, and, and almost everything in the environment has changed. Food has become ubiquitous. Uh, 20 years ago, the only food you could get in a gas station was a pack of gum, and today it's a fast-service food food aerarium, um, <laughs> that, um, and, and the food is cheap, inexpensive. I mean, it's, it's cheap, widely available, good tasting, um, so people consume it. In addition, we've engineered physical activity out of our lives. 60% of children used to walk to school, and now that number is down to 20%. This is a consequence of how we live, the suburbanization of this country, which has made it impossible to employ physical transport on a day-to-day -day basis to do, to go to school, to go to church, to do errands. Um, and a good example of that is when we lived in Newton Center, Massachusetts. On a weekend, I could walk into the center of Newton Center and get half a dozen errands accomplished. Now I live in Atlanta. In order to do those same errands, I have to go to three to four different locations by car, uh, and these are strip malls where I conduct my business. And that characterizes a large percentage of people living in the southeast and southwest uh, and, and west where some of the greatest population growth has occurred. Now, when, when some people talk about public policies to address obesity, and we'll come back to that in a separate podcast, the people who oppose those will say that parents just aren't behaving well enough, and it's parents' fault that they're letting their kids do these things and not protecting them from whatever the bad environment is. What do you say to that? Well, you know, obesity is, is a chronic disease, and like other chronic diseases, it sneaks up on people. Um, one part of the, the issue is that parents don't identify obesity, um, or it's dismissed as, you know, just baby fat that's going to disappear. Uh, so part of this has to do with resetting the, the um, level of understanding of what constitutes obesity. Part of it has to do with the, the fact that we make decisions every day that affect caloric balance but never think of it in those terms. So we think about a short-term concession to a child to go to a fast food restaurant uh, without thinking about the excess calories that are provided that, by that fast food restaurant. And it's not until the end of that six months or a year when they go back to see their pediatrician and notice that there's been excessive weight gain. And even on the pediatric side, that weight gain isn't noted as a severe problem. It may be that they're beginning to diverge from the growth curve, and they're diverging further and further from that standard growth curve every year. Um, so at what point, uh, one, one of the challenges is to identify the point at which parents become concerned and see this as a problem and begin to take steps. It's too easy to make unhealthy choices in this country. Uh, we've, uh, the, as I said, fast food and, and good tasting, high caloric density, high fat, high sugar, high salt food is everywhere. And, um, and it's promoted heavily. So making a healthy choice is not always an easy choice, um, particularly if you're in an inner city that doesn't have access to supermarkets or um, safe places for children to play. Um, 
when I began um, years ago when we published the first study showing that television viewing was associated with obesity, I thought, well, this is clearly a, a parenting problem. Um, but then I had a pediatrician tell me a story about a mother who he struggled with to get this very severely overweight boy to lose weight and struggled because he knew this child was watching a lot of television. And the mother and the pediatrician were becoming increasingly frustrated with each other uh, until finally, uh, because the boy's weight wasn't changing, the pediatrician kept focusing on television viewing. Finally, the mother in desperation said, you know, doctor, at least if my child is in front of the television set, he won't be shot, which put this whole issue of what I thought was a parenting problem in a, in a broader contextual um, environment, environmental problem. This was a, an issue of safety, not of, uh, of an aberrant behavior. So when you hear the argument that this is an issue of parental responsibility, that government doesn't need to play a role here, for example, that parents just need to learn to say no, what do you say? Well, I think ultimately the final common pathway is the parent. They're, that's inescapable. And, and parenting clearly is responsible for what foods come into the house. But the fact that thinking that parents have the on, are the only responsible party doesn't address the issue that these foods are everywhere, they're heavily promoted, that children see them advertised on television and in other media, and therefore prompt their parents to buy those foods. And parents want quality time with their children and are not prepared to have a, an argument every time the child wants a sugared breakfast cereal or wants to go to a fast food restaurant. Um, and uh, parents are often working two jobs, or both parents are working, which limits the opportunities for those parents to, to give their children the opportunities for physical activity that those children need. So often the unhealthy behavior becomes the default behavior because the healthy behavior is harder to achieve. Do you believe that there are categories of foods that are contributing disproportionately to the problem? No question. Um, for example, sugar drinks, which uh, include both soda and 10% juices, account for 250 calories in the average child's diet. Um, that's a huge contribution. We also know from <clears throat> another study that pizza is a, ma is a major source of calories across uh, virtually all age groups. Um, those foods are, are everywhere, uh, inexpensive, uh, widely promoted, and heavily consumed. So does it follow then that public policies aimed at decreasing consumption of these particular categories would be justified? Sure, and I think part of it is, is decreasing the availability, decreasing access. Um, and one of the, the agreements, which has gone a long way to achieving that with respect to sugar drinks, is the agreement between the Alliance for a Healthier Generation and the American Beverage Association. Um, that got a lot of the sugar drinks out of schools, but didn't absolutely um, get them all out of schools. And, and we know from a study in Boston that that has had a substantial effect on caloric intake. Um, I, I think it's harder to attribute a weight change to that, but I think that's likely to follow. So in the subsequent podcast, we'll come back and talk about prevention of obesity and public policies. But let's talk for a moment about treatment. Are there, uh, when, once a child is overweight, is there a reason that a family could be optimistic about having something be done about this? Um, sure. And I think it, it um, takes some very, um, it, it takes some energies on the part of the provider. Um, 
many providers are unwilling to deal with this. They've, they're frustrated. They don't feel like they uh, are effective in counseling. They don't know what to counsel about. Uh, remember that a, a provider's training in nutrition often consists of biochemistry, not of the relationship of food intake to a problem like obesity. Um, secondly, um, if a child is obese, providers don't know how to begin the discussion and um, often are conflicted about the problem themselves. They may themselves be overweight or may not have the healthiest habits. And it's clear that that providers who themselves are physically active and have a healthy body weight are more likely to counsel about those issues. Um, but providers can easily open the discussion, as I did for years, by asking, are you concerned about your child's weight? Open-ended question, doesn't prejudge the parent. Um, or ask the parent, um, has, the, has your child's weight caused them any problems? Um, often parents who themselves are overweight are reluctant to um, bring the topic up but are not reluctant to talk about the challenges that their own excess weight has posed for them. And that's often a way to initiate that conversation. Um, it's also important to understand where the child's weight fits on the priorities that the parent has. Um, if this is a parent who's a single parent who is working hard to just put food on the table, uh, who's worried about paying uh, the next month's rent, uh, who lives in a violent neighborhood, um, whose child uh, is often unsafe because of the, of the composition of the neighborhood, obesity may not be a high priority for that parent. So the provider has to understand where obesity sits within the, the, the parent's concerns before even beginning to talk about uh, how to change it. It's important for the provider to share with that parent what risks that child's weight poses for the child's weight. But too often, um, the, 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 the approach of the provider is to say, you know, your, your child is overweight and really needs to lose weight, um, which you know, may not come as a surprise to the parent and, uh, and restates the obvious and is not helpful because it comes across as, as criticism uh, or you know, why haven't you done something about your child's weight, rather than trying to understand the context in which um, the child lives and, and the uh, role that weight may or may not play in terms of family priorities. Do you see any positive trends in the way physicians are now being trained, um, the degree to which time to counsel individuals on weight issues is getting reimbursed? Are there things moving in the right direction with that? Um, reimbursement has improved, that's for sure. Um, CMS announced that it would reimburse for obesity counseling um, about a year ago, which is a, an important step forward. Um, the and but the degree to which counselors, to the degree to which providers are counseling, uh, remains a concern. Uh, many parents of children who are overweight are not uh, report that their physician has not addressed this problem. Um, uh, sometimes there's a, a discrepancy between the physician, what the physician says they've done, and what the the patient hears. Um, but I think that's still a, a concern, and I think self-efficacy is still a concern that that many providers just feel that this is an insurmountable problem over which they have no control. And, um, and I think, I, d I don't know enough yet uh, about where medical education is, but um, that's something I think we need to go back to and, and, and understand whether, whether and how that's being addressed in medical school curricula. Good. Well, I look forward to talking to you in the next podcast about public policies meant to prevent obesity. So thanks so much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Enjoyed it.
Our guest is Dr. William Dietz, Director of the Division of Nutrition, Physical Activity, and Obesity at the Centers for Disease Control. Please visit our website, www.yalerudcenter.org. You'll find there a variety of resources on food policy issues, an email newsletter that gets dispatched at no cost, and links to other podcasts from visitors who have been to the Rudd Center. Thank you.